The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Often do we pause and ask ourselves where the twists and turns we take in life take us? From day to day, where do our choices lead? Left, right, straight ahead, or back the way we came? How does this nonchalance in choosing every small direction we take shape what many call God's plan? How do these tiny, nearly invisible options alter what is to come? And should we ignore these countless nuances? Is this ignorance the lubrication of life? Would a diamond tip awareness seize the fluid function of existence as we know it? If we were to carry that self-awareness on the forefront of our minds, that every flip of the blinker, every pause at a red light, every U-turn when we forget the grocery list, miss an exit, or make that spontaneous, last-minute decision to take a scenic detour, a Sunday drive, or more frightening, the sleepwalk that is our daily routine, as we live our lives as naturally and systematically as we have come to depend upon, could this all be a colossal mistake? Is there no escaping impending doom? On the other hand, how would we possibly go about our days with such superstition, dread, paranoia, and mind-boggling care? How do we maintain sanity while doing all we can to ensure we are heading straight to where we want to be? all while knowing it is inevitable that one day we will all crash head-on into that brick wall that has suddenly appeared out of nowhere. The answer is, we simply cannot. After all, UPS driver Terry Haynes didn't know when he came home from work on Tuesday, January 12th, 
1993. As he threw together a quick dinner before heading out to play a game of pitch, the tragedy was brewing just on the horizon. Or did he? And John Tompkins, when he plopped down in his lazy boy recliner before that football game, did he know that his troubled family life was about to be violently torn apart? And Rod Franciscovich, as he strolled through Walmart with his brother Anthony, looking for fabric softener, furnace filters, light bulbs, and a new CD case for his collection, did Rod feel that tinge in the air, that sense of doom curdling in the storm clouds that gathered? And David, when he celebrated his son's first birthday party with his wife Sarah at their home in Canton, Illinois that evening, did he know that his secretary Donna Tompkins, apartment at 365 South First Avenue would soon burst into flames right before his eyes? And what about a week prior when Terry stopped by Donna's apartment to gift her a religious card in a frame for Christmas? Could he have known it would be the last time he saw Donna alive? And as Donna cried, heart warm with the God she had recently felt closer to, as she looked down at the illustration of the baby Jesus in her hands, did Terry know that she would soon be even closer to God? When she hugged and kissed him on the cheek and thanked him in tears, did Terry realize he would never see Donna alive again? And on Sunday, January 10th, when John saw his estranged wife while returning their daughter Justine, early in the morning after a father and daughter weekend on the Tompkins family farm. Did John know what was about to occur? Did John know that Donna had just rushed home from her boyfriend Rod's house, where she had awoken before the sun rose in his bed? When John stood there on the porch in his filthy chore clothes knocking, as the door quickly swung open by Donna in a crumpled dress, John surprised she was not in her nightgown, as she guarded the threshold unwilling to let him enter. As he wondered if he had awoken her, had he also asked himself if his wife would soon be dead? As John gave his Justine, cranky and tired and wanting her mommy, a kiss, did he worry that he would never see his daughter alive again? On Tuesday morning, January 12th, when Donna's alarm went off at 6am, she crawled out of bed rubbing her eyes and yawning, fumbling for the on switch of the coffee maker. Rushing to get ready as she left Rod to sleep in on the tweed sofa bed. As she woke him to let him know she'd leave a key for him beside the sewing machine on her way out the door. Did he know that he would never lay by her side again? Did he wonder in the least? Could he have known as he awoke around 10 in the small apartment warm with dry heat? As he got dressed, folded up the couch, replaced the cushions, folded the pink flowered comforter, and made his own cup of coffee before shutting and locking the door behind him. As he made his way to his blue two-tone 1979 Nissan 280ZX, which Rod always parked him back out of sight of John and Terry. Did Rod know of Terry's rage? Did he sense that he would never be coming over after work again to hide his truck in the shadows and crawl into bed with Donna, who let asleep in the middle of the night, that he would never make sweet love to her again? And David, did David feel anything off when Donna waved him goodbye leaving for work that evening? As he was left alone in the basement office, did he sense in his gut that Donna would never work beside him again? Did David know his right hand as he called her, 
when he helped her with that tax problem as she threw her arms around him and hugged him tight, telling him she loved him? Did David know that he would never hold her again? Hear those sweet words ever again? Did he? And if so, how? And why? The same goes for them all, each and every one of them. How? And why? Did they sense it down deep? Or were they wholly oblivious and caught by surprise, swept away by the routine of life? Or did they know? Did they plot? Did they stew and boil and rage and sigh until that evil overspilled? And was it sex, money, revenge? Could it be jealousy, control? Did they want Donna to be all their own? Was Terry right? God would eventually tell Donna she belonged to him? What about John? That Donna would always be his wife? And David? Was Donna doomed to always be his right hand? Or Rod, who made her so happy, yet who scolded her for not scolding Justine too harshly, not harshly enough? Was his sweetness a veneer? Would it be foolish not to weigh every suggestion with similar doubt? And David's wife Sarah, admittedly jealous, after all she had caught wind of the affair. And when David held Donna tightly in his arms, when he kept her in his office by his side, refusing her that promotion, that raise, ignoring her dream of becoming a trust officer herself, when would he lose her? Had he hindered her advancement? She was his right hand after all. Did she know too much? Had she figured it out? A scheme, a plot, a financial crime? Were wicked thoughts present in David's overactive mind as she waved him goodbye, naive and unassuming? And as he celebrated his son's birthday, and later as his wife fell asleep, and the game flickered on the TV. Had he waited patiently for that opportune moment, for the clock to strike midnight? As Rod sat in his kitchen with his brother and roommate Scott, listening to music with the TV flickering, sipping on screwdrivers and pots of coffee, with something dark, hidden deep, fermenting inside. When Rod's brother left for home and Scott went down to the basement to crash around midnight, did Rod really go off to bed? Or did he start his Nissan and back out of the drive? When Donna had called him earlier that night and chatted about John and joked about Ren and Stimpy, were they avoiding some heavier elephant in the room? A room they would never share again? When John got off the phone with Donna and called his girlfriend Sheila and got off the phone with her, did he really go grocery shopping at such a late hour? With the closest town to the farm, the small village of Cuba, was the store in a community with a population of 1,100 even open after 10 p.m.? Or did John drive to Canton? And is it true John soon returned to plop back down in his lazy boy before late night television? Or had he cruised down First Avenue in Canton, passing by Donna's house as he always had, a wife he could not release, whom he clung to, clutching on to the delusion that they'd soon be back together, once again a happy family, even after his violent outbursts? Did John have access to accelerants on the farm? Did John have cause, motive, anger, greed? Would the divorce threaten the family farm and his livelihood 
Did John have an appetite for revenge? To humiliate Donna as she had him? Would John ensure Donna would always be his wife? Terry, plain pitched the Moose Lodge, a solid alibi. Harry Wagner by his side. Was Terry busy hatching a tightly woven plot? When he left the bar at 10.30 after sharing a last drink with Ron Ford and Charlene Barclay, who was bartending, did Terry honestly go home and flip on the screen? Or were impulses and voices, the same godly voices that told him Donna would soon belong to him? Had they driven Terry's drug-fueled mind to madness, to misdeed? Had they told him to strike that match? Had he heard that Donna had been flirting and kissing a co-worker at the bank? Rudd Hassel. After all, Donna had told him herself. And Terry knew all about Rod. He called her on his phone after all, telling her, I know where you are, I know who you're with. And he had heard whispers and rumors of the affair with David. Could Terry, a man consumed with possessive jealousy, boyhood buddies and classmates with the lead detective at the Canton Police Department, could Terry get away with murder? Did Terry have the potential, the madness, the motive? Did any of the four? Did all of the four? After all, David discovered the fire. But what of the other three? How would they heard of the news? Well, let's take a look-see. January 13th, 1993. 6 a.m. Donna Tompkins' alarm would usually go off. Still, it is impossible to know if it had, or if it had not, or if someone had turned it off, be it Donna, or the killer, or if it melted in the fire. Around this same time, John awoke before the sunrise, as farmers tend to do, before the rooster crowed, and he headed to his dad's in the frigid 20 degrees, negative 8 degree wind chill, and wind gusts up to 17 miles per hour, for what was to be a long, cold day of grinding feet. Meanwhile, David awoke at 6.15, and after coffee with his wife Sarah, began to get the kids ready for the babysitter before arriving at the bank by 8.15. Terry picked up his father, and the two headed to Lewiston on the icy highway, a 15-minute drive to the southwest, where they ate breakfast at Hilda's Pantry. It is unknown what breakfast they had, but Terry had to make a court appearance on a criminal matter. Rod awoke at 8.30, and went across the street to his brother's home where he grabbed the clean laundry he had left the night before, and then he returned home and took it easy before he had to get ready for work. Despite the below freezing wind chill, John was having a good day, cruising the tractor through the hardened snow-covered fields. He felt he could finally see the light at the end of the tunnel. He looked forward to seeing his daughter that evening for their date at McDonald's. Justine would eat a Happy Meal and giggle as she went down the slide and leapt into the ball pit in the newly installed playland, hopefully not landing on another child buried beneath. At 9 a.m., Terry appeared before the judge. At about the same time, David was informed that his secretary Donna had not arrived with the ATM drop. He was urged to call her house, but he got the answering machine after two or three rings. He threw on his coat and let his boss, Max Scott, know that he was running over to her place where upon arrival he discovered the raging fire. At home, Rod was still taking it easy. Across from the courthouse where Terry handled his legal matters, 
a fire call came into the Fulton County Sheriff's Department. Meanwhile, David's boss, Max Scott, had arrived on the scene himself to find David frantically breaking windows out of the back of the house, trying to crawl in to see if he could feel or find anyone in any of the back bedrooms, burning his hair and face and coat. The breaking glass caused all sorts of commotion, bringing the other tenants out of the large Victorian home in utter surprise, and the neighbors out onto their ice-encrusted porches and into the slippery street, where they watched the fire truck slide to a stop at the curb, and they listened as the fire marshal scolded David for venting the fire, and as David scolded them for taking too damn long, as they prepared to smash a hole in the roof to act as a chimney to vent the fire, David shouted he had already vented the fire. The fire chief climbing into the same back windows, also choked out by smoke and heat and flames. And the neighbors watched, and a strange boy in the street with a video camera recorded as David ran around like a madman, desperate for the professionals to do their damn jobs, begging them to give him an asbestos jacket and oxygen, saying he would go in and save Donna and Justine on his own if he must, crying out, if Donna and Justine are in the room with the glowing red dome, they are surely dead. It took nearly 50 firefighters from two different departments almost two hours to fight the blaze. And at around 11.30 a.m., spotting smoke as he and his father drove back into town, Terry slowed down as he approached the tracks, the trucks, the crowd standing in the now-flooded street. As Terry and his father came to a stop, they watched the two body bags being carried to the awaiting ambulance. Meanwhile, out on the farm as John drove the tractor, he spotted his mother and father walk out of the house. Approaching, he wondered what was going on, as they were never all together. When they waved him over, John hopped off the tractor and asked what was happening. John's dad said, If you've ever had strength or self-control in your life, now is the time, son. He paused but continued, Terrible thing has happened in Donna's apartment in Canton. And when John asked, Are they okay? Are they in the hospital? His dad told him he needed to pick up. As his mom said, corner's been called, and John fainted to the cold, hard ground. Just past noon, Rod was putting on his tie as his roommate Scott awoke in the basement. Scott had heard a car pull into the driveway and someone walking right into the house without knocking. The voices were muffled, but it was Terry Haynes. Terry walked right up to a bewildered Rod and said, I want to shake your hand. And with a tight grasp, Terry pulled Rod in for a hug and told him Donna and Justine are dead and that he had seen the bodies being carried out of the apartment. Rod was speechless and confused as Scott heard Terry say, We should get together sometime and have coffee before leaving as quickly as he had arrived. Rod called in to work telling him his girlfriend and her daughter had been killed in a fire, and Scott and Rod got into the Nissan, and as they approached the large Victorian, bellowing thick plumes of white smoke beside the track, Rod began to cry. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio. 
The show is produced by August Olson. Editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrisimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.